0: Hi everyone, uh, thank you for tuning in to our AI for Growth executive series. In this interview series, we learn from the top executives at global companies who have successfully applied AI to their companies. Today I'm sitting here with Ruma Chowdhury, who is the Global Lead for Responsible AI at Accenture. So Ruma, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into AI.
1: Sure, and thank you for having me, Marie. I'm really excited to meet your audience. Um, So a little bit about myself. I am a rare bird in Silicon Valley. I come to data science from a social science background, so I'm one of the people who came over more from statistics and less from programming, um, which has certainly informed my role as responsible AI lead. So I came to Silicon Valley um, actually while finishing my dissertation so I hadn't finished yet and uh, I do not recommend
0: anyone try to do what I did which is really isn't that the classic Silicon Valley thing like go do something cool before you finish school
1: (laughs) yeah well and then but I I also was trying to finish my dissertation while working full-time which was not Mm. and one does not have a social life when you do that Um, Mm. so I worked as a data scientist and then I was actually teaching data science at a boot camp called Metis Um, and then Accenture found me and they had this interesting new role. Um, They, you know, no one's ever held this job before. The field of AI and ethics was brand new and they didn't really know what to expect and Mm -hmm. they actually needed somebody who was not just a person who knew data science and AI but Mm -hmm. understood human beings and social behaviors and things like that and there I was.
0: Yeah, so tell us a little bit more. What does your role as Global Lead for Responsible AI actually entail?
1: A lot of flying around, um, which I think you (laughs) well, you are
0: a rare bird. Yes, so (laughs) birds fly. So, Um,
1: well, it's really interesting. I think so. There's a couple of things that we're seeing happen. It's not just artificial intelligence and you know AI being so pervasive in our society. That's certainly part of it. Um, As we start to use artificial intelligence for. Uh, things like jobs, um, hiring, even who you date, which impacts you know who you might marry, right? Um, what you see when you go online, um, you know the, what the news you you watch, right? In other words, what shapes your mind? People are really increasingly concerned about bias that might creep into AI, and we've seen some pretty notable cases. Um, you know, other than the sort of big, the big ones from a few years ago, like Google facial recognition tagging black people as gorillas, we've seen things like natural language processing, um, mm-hmm. algorithms trained on Google News coming up with conclusions, like autoencoders coming up with conclusions like man is to programmer as woman is to homemaker. So, Or image recognition being trained on Getty stock photos that so strongly associate a woman with a kitchen that when it sees a man in a kitchen, it tags the man as a woman because it has not seen any photos of men in kitchens, right? Um, So we see all these problematic things happening. So there's one. The other part is there is this shift towards this idea of conscious capitalism. And what that means is that it's no longer sufficient for a company to say, oh, I'm regulatory compliant and I'm fine then. Like it's not, we as consumers now consider it the responsibility of an organization not just to be legally compliant, but to do good. And that's because regulation has had a hard time keeping up with technology. So yes, it is not illegal to tag black people as gorillas, but you should know better Google, right? That's sort of what consumers are saying. So we're seeing a shift towards more mindful ethical capitalism, which is going hand in hand with the pervasiveness of this technology. And what we're seeing people say is, you know, I cannot see... If an algorithm is being discriminatory towards me, right, I I have no way of understanding because things are hyper-personalized. So then you, company, it is your job to make sure that things are ethical and thoughtfully produced so that, you know, the outcomes that I see, um, you know, aren't being biased in a way that
0: I have no control over. So, can you dig into more detail about what does it actually mean to be "quote unquote" ethical? So, previously we had discussed how difficult it is to have terms like fairness or bias, and how loaded those terms are. So, how do you even tell that an algorithm is discriminatory? How can you tell it's being fair, or ethical? Um, how how do you yeah How do you get down to those technical details?
1: Right. So, I will say first, there are the really obvious, egregious cases, right? Such as facial recognition tagging black people's gorillas, right? That is obviously there's no ambiguity there. But you're right, there is some ambiguity in something like um, LinkedIn's algorithmic recommendations, right? For me personally, it actually gives me pretty terrible um, Mm -hmm. jobs. It it will still recommend entry level data science roles, and I haven't been an entry level data scientist in years. But I don't know why, and frankly, I don't think anybody Mm -hmm. at linkedin could untangle from the algorithm the hyper personalized algorithm which has things like what i post and the things i've liked and the people's pages i've read and who my friends are right it wouldn't know off the bat it's very difficult to uh, to uh un- to disentangle whether or not it was my gender or my somehow my race that influenced um, the outcome so you know you're right when we say ethical the reason my title is responsible ai lead is that as an employee of accenture it's not my job to tell another company what it means to be ethical, and you know here's where one might fall into a bit of bit of like a philosophical. I call it the philosophical morass. So there's this, uh, this like I, it's almost like a Gartner hype cycle of uh, responsible AI. So you get started, and you're like, oh, we need these like ten commandments of AI, and then you say things like. AI should be fair, and then you're like, oh, how do I operationalize it? Then you fall into the pit, and you're like, oh, well, what does it mean to be fair? Oh my God, Plato, right? And then you start reading like Plato and Aristotle, and your head explodes, and then at some point, you come out of it, and you're like, all right, well, we have to do something, right? And yes, it will not be an all-encompassing, universal definition of fairness, but it will be something. So the benefit of being a responsible AI lead, it's really about being responsible towards your consumers, towards society, and towards the community. And for every company that I go to, I sort of, I always joke that I have an easy out and my easy out is that when I go to a company, I ask them first and foremost, what are your company's core values? What is your mission and is your artificial intelligence in line with that mission? So you think about, let's say social media, which is kind of everybody's favorite punching bag right now when it comes to ethical behavior. Right? So if you were to ask, um, Mark Zuckerberg, what are the core values of Facebook, you know, and, and what what is Facebook supposed to be doing for society, he would say, <laughs> it is a tool of communication and connection. And then you ask, well, Mr. Zuckerberg, is your artificial intelligence doing that? Is it actually enabling people to connect and communicate, right? So when I say it needs to be ethical or responsible, it is those core values that I'm helping companies
0: aim towards. Mm. And so, we already mentioned one big challenge, right? Which is being responsible. It can be very difficult to define. What would you say are some of the other challenges that you've seen companies face when they go up this responsibility hype cycle and then fall into the pits? Like what are these other sort of dragons and demons waiting for them at the end of this right, pit?
1: Right. So you know, it's it's a very undefined space, and we don't have a regulatory environment yet. Um, and that, frankly, is worrisome. I think there is a common misconception that companies don't want regulation. Companies actually do. People want to know what they should do so they don't get in trouble. Frankly, right? Mm. Um so there isn't a regulatory space defined, but everybody's in this, you know, basically like AI um race at the moment. So you can't not be in the race, but at the same time how do you control for these unintended consequences being that we don't have these global guidelines or, or even national guidelines or local guidelines yet? Um, so, what they're really trying to look at is how can I govern AI internally? So, the questions I, so it was interesting, I thought that most people would ask me very technical questions, like how do I unpack the black box? Da-da-da. Actually, most of the questions I get are about how do I create a system of governance for artificial intelligence internally at my company. It's actually a really fascinating conversation because then it's about breaking down silos between different parts of your organization. In other words, data scientists now have to go talk to the legal department, figure things out, right? Um, management has to understand what a data scientist does. Um, the people who are your database administrators have to really you know, start talking to other parts of the, the organization as well. So it really, it's almost like a, um, a coming together moment of the company as a whole to help them on their AI journey.
0: So I'm going to ask that popular question back, which is, how do I set up a governance model other than getting my people to talk to each other? Are there, for example, other very key action items or steps that I as an executive need to be thinking about other than what you just mentioned, which is getting people to talk to each other?
1: Right. So, a good place to start is always there's an acronym we use in the space, and it's uh, it's FAITH: fairness, accountability, transparency, and explainability. And that encompasses things like data privacy and security, the algorithms you're using, etc. So, the end goal would be something that encompasses all of FAITH. So, to move sort of backwards from that, you know, you know, beautiful world in which everything is wonderful (laughs) and rosy, um, the the good way to think about it and move backwards to to get started is how can you enable your data scientists and the other, you know, your project managers, your management, et cetera, to identify in which parts of your project development lifecycle ethics can fit in. So the challenge to someone like myself is how can ethics move at the pace of innovation, right? So even at Accenture, we talk a lot about agile development, innovation, you know, we talk about rapid prototyping. I then can't come in and say, here's a six month process for validating your model, right? that's not not fair. And and then nobody would adopt it. So it's how can we look at your product development lifecycle? How can we look at the biases that might occur and where you can address them? So that's when it starts to become difficult where a data scientist says, well, I don't understand, I don't know this stuff. I don't know that the city of Chicago um, has a history of redlining so that if I try to make an algorithm and I use zip code to determine credit worthiness, it will be discriminatory towards black people. That needed some very specific knowledge. Um, Mm. This is where we help form panels of experts um, for companies. We also then uh, enable, we also provide trainings so that data scientists are enabled to ask the right questions. It's not that you have to know everything, you have to start asking the right questions really. And that's what we're enabling people to do. So we do things like, have a best practices playbook. Um, We do things like have a data science ethics training. And again, it's about different types of biases where you can think about it. I think the most important thing is something that is kind of the Holy Grail of all of this, which is the Mm -hmm. algorithmic impact assessment.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, And
1: a bunch of people have been talking about that. So Kate Crawford at AI Now um, has a really good medium article talking about algorithmic impact assessments specifically for policy decisions. This is because New York City passed an algorithmic transparency law. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm taking that and applying it in industry. So what that might mean is um, it's building on the concept that already exists or papers that already exist called the privacy impact assessment for data. How might that look for algorithms? So we fill out this form, we have this series of protocols and practices we go through, and then something exists for internal consumption in the future so that if something goes wrong or um, someone needs to go back and refer to a similar situation that happened in the past, they're able to do that.
0: All right, I'm gonna go look that up and add it to the links (laughs) when we post this video. Um, So going back to what you were saying before about figuring out how ethics can go at the pace of innovation and figuring out where in your current process, workflow, or development you can fit in ethics, where, have you noticed, are some of the best places to open that ethical question? And what are the questions that data scientists, data scientists should be asking that maybe they're not right now?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where my social science background comes in quite a bit. Um, when I was teaching at Metis, the one thing I noticed was that sometimes when people with a pure programming background, um, Hard to remember that data is about people, and as a social scientist, that's the only way I, I think I I mm-hmm. cannot think of data any other way, right? Um, but I realized that for my students that came from pure mathematical uh, backgrounds or pure computer programming backgrounds, data was a grid, um, and that grid, mm-hmm. you know, and it was the grid was almost like a, a, a holy grill of truth. Uh, but for a social scientist, it's not like that data is inherently, data is not some objective truth. It is inherently reflective of cultural and social biases, right? And even human error or human biases. So for example, and I'll give you a really good example. If I ask you, hey, Maria, how are you doing today? Your knee jerk reaction will be to say, I'm fine, right? That's just that's just how we act in society. So like very sim- simplified example, if I were to go around doing a survey, asking 100 people every day how they are, and everyone said they're fine, I'm like, look, the data says everyone's great. Um, but we know that Our social norms are such that if I ask you in casual conversation how you're doing, unless we are really good friends, you don't start doing a a, a brain dump on me of, you know, my boyfriend's been doing this and my cat's sick and, you know, blah, 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 That's not socially acceptable. So that's sort of a, a very simple example of something you might end up seeing in data. Another thing is that when we think about measurement of our data, often we take things as ground truth. So I'll give you a great example that's often used. Um, when I say I'm measuring crime, um, I'm not actually truly measuring the amount of crime that occurs. We use that. It's actually a proxy. What I'm actually measuring are the number of arrests and the number of reported crimes. So one can imagine that really bad neighborhoods where crime is rampant, people probably don't even report half the stuff that happens. Or on the other end, extremely affluent neighborhoods where there's a bunch of, you know, really rich kids, um... People may not report crimes either because they're afraid of people with wealth and power. You know, there's so many social considerations that may come in. Um, So there's a lot of interesting things to think about. So it's getting data scientists thinking about how their data looks in the real world, in the wild. And also in Silicon Valley, we answer our own problems, right? So we are all quite similar to each other. Um, We come from even, yes, there is variation, but we come from quite similar backgrounds. Most of us come from privileged enough backgrounds, right? Most of us have a good working knowledge of technology. But it's hard for us then to think about how might a disabled person interact with this thing? How might this impact an elderly person or a minority or somebody who's low income? And it's thinking about data in these ways. And what's interesting is that I think once you start asking the right questions, people's brains really start to work. Because I think as human beings, we we do all have a bit of empathy in us. It's just that we've never been asked to apply it to data. And then when we do, we're actually able to start thinking of the interesting questions. So the second part was like, where in the life cycle? Um, the most helpful thing we help we do with companies are design-led thinking workshops, and mm-hmm. it's to help them conceptualize the project. So I actually um, have run a few of them at conferences just
0: as like a bit of a teaser. I want to
1: take one. I actually, I did one at the
0: rework summit. Oh no, um, I
1: wasn't there. Well, I
0: will, I will sign up for your next one.
1: Yeah, well, you were. It was the day you were emceeing, so um, it was. I Um,
0: had an excuse.
1: Yes, you did have an excuse. So I might actually be doing it in the one next year as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it'll probably be be evolved by then. But one of my favorite exercises is to think of. I call it "break your toy." Um, so I have people, we have people go through this exercise with a prototype or project or something. And then I tell them, imagine you want to break, you want to gain your own system. You want to lie, cheat, steal. You want to, you know, like completely cheat the system. How would you do it? And what would you do? Right. Um, and then when you get people, cause we, I think a lot of us like to think very positively. We like to think everyone's going to interact in a very literal way with our tool, but that's not always the case. Um, and sometimes these edge cases are what we end up seeing in AI, right? So then I think about, well, how might you break this tool? And then people start to come up with really creative solutions of, well, if I were trying to hack my own system, here's how I, w- how I would do it. And then the next exercise is, all right, now think about how you would fix it. And then often that's when people start to really see where in my development phase I might look for this thing or test for this thing, right? It might be all the way in the very beginning. When I'm thinking about, should this be a web-based platform or something on mobile? Um, Or it could be at the very end when I think about, okay, if uh, elderly people were were to interact with this, what would happen? And how can I test for this? So there's a lot of really interesting exercises people walk through. And we haven't even started talking about algorithmic fairness yet. We're still talking about data and design. (laughs)
0: so before we talk about algorithmic fairness i wanted to ask so not everyone gets the luxury of having the global lead of responsible (laughs) ai at accenture to guide them on their you know responsible ai journey so uh, you've mentioned a couple things people can do one is to get more interdisciplinary cross-functional collaboration and discussion another one is to do this break your toy exercise, where they try to think through um, some of the design challenges that may occur at the edge outside of normal use. Um, What are some other things that executives can just start doing, even if they don't necessarily have your advisory, uh, to start doing today, to start thinking more responsibly about AI?
1: Right, Um, I think a good thing to do is think about who your target population is and whether your data is representative of that target population. Um, and this was, you know, why, for example, Google's face, facial recognition, um, you know, didn't result, didn't uh, identify African-Americans, simply didn't train enough African-Americans. Um, and there's some amazing work called Gender Shades um, done about, you know, how these data sets are actually imbalanced, And that is what's leading to imbalanced ultimate outcomes of facial recognition working with near like near perfect accuracy for white men. And at about 68%, I think, accuracy for dark black women. Um, mm-hmm. That is a massive discrepancy. Um, so that might be a good thing. Just a really simple thing to think about is, what is my data? What do I have? What does it represent? Where might it be lacking? So a lot of it's just thinking exercises. And then you know, and this is more for executives. Data scientists can run. There's so many things that we can look at as data scientists. But even as an executive, to think about it might there be a problem in the data that I'm getting. I mentioned measurement bias earlier. So for example, if you um, want to understand who's, so a classic example would be if I wanted to make a new flavor of ice cream um, and I have chocolate and vanilla or whatever, and I I only ask the people who are consuming my ice cream what this new flavor is that they want, that actually is quite problematic because I haven't asked the people who don't eat my ice cream. right? So there's like a sample selection bias here. So it might be that people don't eat my ice cream because I only have chocolate and vanilla and they like strawberry. Whereas if I'm appealing to the people who already buy my ice cream, I'm just cannibalizing my own market, right? And it seems sensible once I've like laid it out like that for you, but it's, an, it's a really common mistake people make when they're thinking about their data. So I'm using you know things that are not related to things that are culturally sensitive, like gender or race or whatever, but you can see how it can translate over right into into your market that way
0: so you've covered data bias such as you know having sample errors Um, and you've also talked about product bias such as not thinking through how your product might fit people who are disabled or who are elderly or who are low-income now let's talk about algorithmic bias so what are some of the key things that if a business leader needs to know about potential algorithmic bias
1: Mm -hmm. And this is where I go back to the the acronym FATE, right? Fairness, accountability, transparency, explainability. So GDPR has pretty much hit everyone in the EU, at least, uh, and (laughs) any company that impacts anybody in the EU like like a sledgehammer because it asks for these things, uh, specifically accountability and explainability. Um, So what to start really thinking about in terms of algorithmic bias? Well, the first thing I would say is it is not impossible to identify algorithmic bias. I think that there is this common misconception that we have, even among data scientists, by the way, that there is no way to identify bias or we have no way of correcting for these things. I I did a talk at Southern Data Science Conference um, a few months ago, and I was surprised at how many people in the audience hadn't heard of the models I was talking about. Um, And I specifically focused on four of them, um, two of them had to do with explainability, um, and two of them had to do with actually literally correcting bias. So, um, first one is actually a pretty well-known one that's almost two years old at this point called Lyme, um, or, or the, the subtitle of it is why should I trust you? And it gives you explanations for classifiers. So it's really great if you, so the example they like to use is if you're using, um, uh, you know, a neural network to help a doctor diagnose a disease, a doctor can't just go to a patient and say, oh, by the way, you got cancer. And the patient's like, you know, how do you know? And the doctor's like, I don't know. The AI told me, like, doesn't quite work that way. So it provides an explainable outcome to the doctor. A second one, which is super interesting, like I like, super nerd out about this one. So it um, uses, it, it, it creates good explanations of visual classifiers using natural language processing. So for example, if I showed you two pictures of birds and one was classified as like, I don't know, a sparrow and the other one is a cardinal, and I asked why, you would say something that differentiated the two because you would say, oh, the cardinal is red and the sparrow is brown, right? But an AI doesn't know to do that if you're just constructing reasoning. What it'd probably say is, you know, bird X is a cardinal because it has wings and you're like, that's not useful, all birds have wings. So it actually provides a unique uh, description of of the image. So again, helping with explainability. And the last two I looked at, one of them is a super popular paper going around right now called Counterfactual Fairness. Um, mm-hmm. There's actually a yeah. few of them. One is published by Turing, one by DeepMind. Counterfactual Fairness, like I, I like speaks to my heart because it's about causal it's about causal reasoning and causal relationships, which is like actually quite like a, a different branch of this work that um really it's more social scientists that have done it. And so if you want to read up on causal reasoning Judea Pearl is like,
0: mm-hmm, man yeah. middle, right? yeah. um,
1: so it uses that to identify counterfactuals. Meaning, I gave the the LinkedIn algorithm example earlier, right? So um, let's say I I think that this algorithm's being biased because of my gender. What this can do is basically switch my gender to male, and it sees if I get a different outcome. And then if I do, then it knows that it's biased and actually corrects for it. That's a super interesting one. And the last one is called Transparent Model Distillation, published by Microsoft Research, which is a really, like, it's like, it's so simple, it's like, it's like the paper clip, right, where it's like so simple, (laughs) it's like amazing, Um, Mm -hmm. where you have two models uh, that are trained. One is trained, let's say you have like a complete black box model, no idea what it's doing. That's like a teacher model. You train a student model, which is much simpler, like literally like a regression model on the the outcomes of your um, neural net or whatever. Then you have a second model, again, really simple, explainable, again, linear regression, let's say, um, trained on the actual outcomes. So you take these two easy to explain models and look at the difference between them and the difference between them would be bias. Mm. I'm like, duh, it's like so (laughs) it's so complex, it's simple, like it's brilliant. That's one of my personal favorites right now. So those are the four papers I presented. Um, so, super long answer to your question because I love
0: nerding. It. Oh, it's a great, it's a great answer. <laughs> I actually, so wait, let me summarize. Um, so, yeah. the first one you mentioned was lime; it's the oldest one. The second one you didn't give me a name for. That's the one where you use natural language processing to explain yeah, the output I'll, of visual models. I'll try. I'll. That's okay, I'll hunt you down afterwards and get the, I'll I'll get them. Um, And then the third one was counterfactual reasoning, Judeo-Pearl, and the last one was the transparent model distillation which came out of Microsoft Research. So I'll make sure that all of these links are available um, when we post uh, this video. So some of these, even knowing that some of these models exist, it's still maybe difficult to kind of get your whole organization on board that there is okay. bias, right? To your point, like some data scientists are even like, oh, there's no such thing as bias. Like algorithms can't be biased. So you get that a lot. And so right. when you get these kinds of arguments from even very technical, very mathematical people that, oh, bias is not a thing. what is? What are some of your um, arguments against that?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my main one is that you know, so when I, when I give my talk about data by, uh, bias, and I'll get it split up into two parts, I talk about the measurement bias, the data bias, and I talk about societal bias, and I always use hiring as a good example, right? So let's say you wanna go and, and you have this data set about hiring whatever, right? Um, I could have perfect data about the hiring salary promotion practices at, let's say Goldman Sachs, um, and train a model on it, and it would almost definitely be biased against women, right? And, you know, is that the real world, yes? Is that the world you want to perpetuate? That's really the question I ask. Like, I agree with you, it is the real world. Um, but is that really what you want to perpetuate? So I have what I call the three eyes about AI. AI is uh, immediate, invisible, and impactful. And this is what lay people imagine AI to be. So to them, AI is this like magical thing, right? It's it's invisible. So, you know, most of the algorithms that run, like people love to anthropomorphize and like put AI in a robot, but that's obviously not what it looks like. Most of it's just like this algorithm and it's running in this magical cloud, right? If you think about how this thing is running, it's it's kind of insane, right? So it's invisible. Um, it's immediate. So if I, I launch this, this new change to my algorithm, it happens pretty much right away and it impacts everybody, every all of my users. So Facebook makes a change to algorithm, it impacts hundreds of millions of people throughout the world. And if that is discriminatory, me as a human being, I literally cannot do anything about it. Right? So I, if I, if there's some discriminatory outcome, I'm aware of the discriminatory outcome, I have to redress. And actually, I'm not even, most of the time, able to know that a discriminatory outcome happened. So who holds the responsibility for that? Are we really willing to say that? We're totally fine with building products that are prejudiced and biased and discriminatory. will deny people jobs um, and they'll have no way of knowing and they'll have no way of fixing it because it's a thing I built and I just didn't care enough. I think that's, that would be, I think there's a bit of soul searching that needs to happen if you really think that that's okay.
0: So what what would you say are still the unresolved barriers and challenges in AI ethics? Because it is so new, we're still defining things. Data scientists don't even know that some of these models you just mentioned existed. What are the issues that keep you up at night?
1: (laughs) Unfettered capitalism. Um, I do have nightmares. Actually, I did have a nightmare of unfettered capitalism last week, Um, sort of really answer your question. Um, uh, uh, It is true that the research in this space is evolving. Um, we, we have plenty of people and amazing research institutions looking into these things right now, but sometimes, you know, academics look at things in a very academic perspective. So for example, I love the counterfactual fairness paper, right? Um, I cannot think of a client that would have the resources and the time, um, to actually implement it. Right. So we have this tension between, even if we created some really amazing models, we need to integrate it into the product life cycle. So that would be tension number one. Um, tension number two is we we're not automating away ethical behavior. Ultimately, companies, organizations, and people have to be ethical. So how might you have an ethical culture? This is where the governance comes in, right? So let's mm-hmm. say I'm a data scientist, and I'm just on some project, and you know, we all know that every project is like over budget and under time, right? So I'm working on this project, uh, you know, and I feel like there may be a discriminatory outcome, right? Um, and if I go to my manager and they're basically going to yell at me because I'm going to hold this project up because I think that there should be more black people represented in the facial recognition data set, that's a problem because any individual data scientist is working on a project, they may not have the power to say, hey, hold on, you know this isn't working, let's fix this. They may need to go to somebody else and they should, it should get escalated, right? It's not my job as data scientist to go, let's say to my client and say, oh, by the way, clients, your data is discriminatory, right? That's probably the job of somebody else. So how do you enable a culture of ethics which comes from good governance, the transparency, accountability mechanisms, really clear guidelines, right? But then we have to make all of those because they don't exist yet.
0: Wow. So speaking of challenges for, for executives to overcome, you've mentioned a lot of tips. What would you say are, for, for the people who aren't able to hire you and unable to hire Accenture to help them with their ethical journey to create all these guidelines and all these rules and all these accountability and measures, um, what are, let's say, the top three things that they should do?
1: Hmm. Um I would say number one would be keep an ear to the ground um, of the responsible AI space. So I've actually started a crowdsourced Google document and actually was looking at it today and people are really adding to it. It's a <laughs> really good piece to get started to understand ethics
0: in AI. Um that's perfect. I was literally about to ask you for resources as like my final question and you just answered it for me. So I'll make sure I get that Google Doc in LinkedIn. Yeah, I will
1: I will share it with you. Um, number two would be you can actually reach out to a lot of these people. The really beautiful part about being in the responsible AI universe is we're all trying to figure this out <laughs> together. So we're super collaborative. I mean, I just got off the phone call um, with this group called Rework America, where I'm working with this professor at at Princeton, where we're going to look at algorithmic fairness for hiring, and I don't know if in another space where I would have ever connected with this guy, mm-hmm. Professor Ed Felton, right? And because we're all in this battle together, um, so what people find it is actually a pretty collaborative space. People want to help and share and learn from each mm. other because we're all, we're all learning.
0: There is a selection um, bias, right? Where responsible people care about responsible uh, AI. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: yeah, you are, yeah, you are probably <laughs> right about that. But then that's good for somebody <laughs> who's interested in space because you probably mm. find it to be practically welcoming. Um, the, the third would be, you know, don't feel the need to reinvent the wheel. Um, there are so many really great people Building things, and we're trying as much as possible to make things as publicly available as we can. Um, so, how might you then implement this using a diverse set of voices? Um, so, how might you even within your own company start to include different kinds of voices in this development process? So, at Accenture, that's that's how I, I always say that we drink our own champagne, right? So, I'm here preaching responsible, ethical AI, and we are ourselves going through some of these processes, we've actually paid um, a a group to uh, help us, uh, you know, actually to assess Accenture, because we can't, we're not, you know, (laughs) I'm not going to assess myself and pat myself on the back about how ethical I am, right? Mm. Um, uh, Mm. And it's super helpful to get another perspective. That would be my third recommendation.
0: I like this. I've never heard of ethical audits, but I feel like we should have ethical audits like for our personal lives too. Like, are you an <laughs> <ethical> <laughs> person- like. I know, right? Because empathy, like to your point, like ethics is not just a function of the AI or the technology. It starts with us being and choosing to be ethical people.
1: Right, right. I mean, because in some of these models, by the way, when you correct for algorithmic fairness, you sacrifice model accuracy. Um, mm-hmm. And if your goal is only to optimize, your model, then yeah, you're right. Fairness doesn't fit into that. I mean, it's, it's sort of like a, a beautiful metaphor for what we're talking about, right? If your goal is just to optimize, um, you know, business revenue or whatever, overall, um, you know, and you don't really care, then you can do that. Um, and sometimes in the short term, fairness may not be immediately profitable. I do mm-hmm. genuinely think that the sustainability, the long term sustainability of businesses rely on being, Ethical and responsible because of how just the market is shifting Um, but sure if we prioritize short-term gain gain over everything then maybe it's not worthwhile to be fair right Mm -hmm. but if we don't then we don't we're not going to have the kind of world and society and culture and companies that we actually can create with all this amazing technology
0: words of wisdom guys (laughs) so thank you so much this was such a fascinating conversation i have this long laundry list of resources now that i i would love to dig into myself and i'm sure our audience will as well but thank you so much for joining us today
1: you're welcome it's been a pleasure chatting with you (laughs) sorry